Good morning. Um, if, you, if you have a, a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to John chapter 7. That's where we're going to be. Um, but uh, good, good morning. Uh, welcome uh, to our, our gathering where uh, we have come, right, to worship our King. We, we come and we, we gather to hear uh, or to, to pray the word together. Uh, we come to speak the word to each other. We come to hear the word expounded and applied, and we, we come to sing the word with one voice, and we, we've come to uh, see the word in the supper and in, in baptism when we have it. Um, and it, it is uh, my joy and privilege to serve us this morning by expounding and applying God's word through the act of preaching. And so our, our text is, is John seven thirty seven through 52. Uh, this is the last little section in uh, what's called the fifth discourse in John's gospel. It's the, that just basically means it's the fifth time that Jesus kind of talks for a while, right? That's what a discourse is. And, and it's a narrative. And chapter 7 up to this point is focused on Jesus' activity at the Feast of Booze, which is a, a feast where you build a tent or a little, little structure, and then there's a lot of water and eating, right? So it's a lot of fun, right? It's, the kids get to go camp outside for a while, right? That's, that's kind of the, the feast of booze. Um, and and our, our, the narrative of chapter 7, it opens with, with Jesus' brothers being very brotherly, right? They're goading Jesus on to show himself publicly to the world. They're razzing him a little bit, um, and they're telling him to, to attend the feast as a figure of public importance. And they're, they're doing this because they don't believe in him, right? They don't believe in him, and they are trying to, to prod and push and, and goad him uh, to be something more than they think that he is. Then it, it kind of jumps into the, the middle of the feast in verse 14, where Jesus kind of shows up uh, quietly, and, and he starts teaching, and his teaching sparks a reaction from the Jews and a conflict with the Pharisees. They get into a little bit of a fight, uh, which is typical uh, of of. Jesus and uh, the rulers of the Jews in our journey through John so far. And so today we're going to end the fifth discourse uh, in our text, focuses on, on the great day of the feast, the last day. What's up, guys? Um, uh, of the Feast of Booze. And so as, as we examine this block of narrative, we're going to see three things. Um, we're going to see who we are before a holy God. So that's the first thing. We're going to see who Jesus is, and we're going to put particular emphasis on his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And then uh, we're going to see what Jesus' promises to all who would come unto him. So if, if you would please stand for the honoring uh, and reading of God's word, John seven thirty-seven through 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? 
Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know, uh, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat and let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we beseech you as the giver of all good things uh, to give us good things from your word today. Open our eyes to the truths that you would have us uh, know and believe and to act upon. Help us uh, to hear with faith. Help us to behold Jesus as he truly is and to love him with all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so our text today, Jesus speaks only 30 words in English. Just 30 words. His speech takes up just one and a half verses. And depending on how fast you read, it will take you less than 10 seconds to read silently or to speak out loud his words of invitation and promise. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And yet, in less than 10 seconds, Jesus is offering us all something infinitely glorious and eternally joyful. In one and a half verses, he is forcing us to make a decision about who we are and about who Jesus is. And in 30 words, he lays out a promise, tells us how to take a hold of it, and gives us a picture of what the promise fulfilled looks like. Our text today begins with uh, the setting of, of Jesus' grand statement, right? Uh, uh, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. The, the last day of the Feast of Booze, uh, if you're looking in, in Leviticus 23:36, it is likely the eighth day of the feast. So you had a seven-day feast, and the eighth day was, was a holy convocation, it is the, the, the language of Leviticus 23. And according to Morris, who's a, a commentator uh, on the, the Gospel of John, he said the Tabernacles was a festival rich in symbolism and popular appeal. It was, it was a happy time. Uh, you got to sleep outside in a tent, right? You got to enjoy the bounty of the harvest season. It, it was a harvest festival. So if you look at Exodus 23:16, you, you kind of see it setting uh, in that way. And it, the, the, the festival, the feast, symbolized God's provision for the people and was a supplication that God would continue to provide for Israel. Uh, Psalm 118.25 was read as, as part of the festivities of the, the Feast of Booze. 
Psalm 118.25 says, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Water was also a crucial element of the festival. Uh, On the first seven days of the feast, uh, a priest would go down to the, the pool of Siloam with a golden flagon, which is just like a gold jar, uh, and he would fill it up in the pool, and then he would carry it in procession from the pool up to the altar of the temple, and there would be joyful sounds of trumpets blowing as part of this procession. He then took water, and, and he poured it into a bowl on the side of the altar, and a tube took, uh, took the water to the base of the altar. At the same time, wine was also poured into a bowl on the other side of the altar. This is uh, all... all context from from Morris. And and, uh, quoting Morris again, these symbolic uh, ceremonies, right, the the pouring of water and of wine, they they are associated uh, with the the words of Isaiah, right, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation, which is Isaiah 12.3. The Jerusalem Talmud uh, connects the ceremonies in this scripture uh, with the Holy Spirit, so why, uh, why is the name of it called the drawing out of water? Because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, according to what is said, with joy shall you draw out, the, uh, out of the wells of salvation. So at the time of Jesus, this festival, this Feast of Booze, was already rich with meaning uh, around the Holy Spirit and water and, and all, these, all these, uh, these elements from the Old Testament. And so this is the context in which Jesus stands up. The eighth day is a waterless day. There's no great water ceremony. And Jesus stands up. uh, And he says, if anyone thirsts, right, people's minds are on water. They're they're thinking about what's going on. And so after all the water has been poured, all the praises have been offered, all the supplications have been made, and the spirit has been anticipated by the Jews at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stands up on the greatest day of the feast, and he starts off by saying, if anyone thirsts. And that leaves you asking this question, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Now, Jesus is clearly not talking about the physical, physical sensation of thirst. Um, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the crowds by the Sea of Galilee would all caution us against taking Jesus' words here to be a reference to to something fleshly, to something carnal, to something corporeal. All of us here, right, we understand this by now about the things Jesus says. He's speaking spiritually. And by putting it the way he does, you and I are left asking ourselves, am I thirsty, to to put it another way, in in language of our first point, this is our first point, Jesus Jesus is asking us to consider, who am I? What condition am I in? And and I think as as we examine our text, uh, our text reveals that there are two ways we should answer this question. The first we'll consider uh, is, is that we are cursed. And the second is that we are thirsty. So cursed. Um, We get get this idea that that we are cursed from verse 49. Um, 
in order for us to, to understand sort of what's going on here, that to see ourselves as cursed from this text, we need to remember that, that John's gospel is full of irony, uh, where, where people speak profound truths without realizing just how true they are. So Pastor Scott uh, pointed this out to us last week, where the, where the Jews... Uh, anticipate Jesus through his church by his spirit going to the Greeks to teach them. Right? We saw that in John 7, 35. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? This is exactly what happens right in the church. The, the church goes to the Greeks uh, and teaches the Greeks. And so Jesus, through his church, accomplishes what's going on in John 7.35. And our text today contains this same type of irony. Uh, in seeking to dismiss the teachings of Jesus and the testimony of the crowd about him, the Pharisees hurl this insult at them. We see it in John, sorry, in John 7.46. The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. But instead of the accusation landing just on the crowd, right, John would know that his readers would be familiar with the text of Deuteronomy 27, 26, or, or Jeremiah 11, uh, 3 through 5, or maybe even... Paul's letter to the church of Galatia, which could have been written as many as 20 years before uh, his gospel. And, and Galatians 3.10 uh, says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So John knows his readers would understand that we are all under a curse for breaking God's law and abandoning his ways. And this is the, the really important thing. The, the curse the Pharisees here in John and, and Paul in Galatians and Jeremiah and Jeremiah and Moses in Deuteronomy are talking about is legal in nature. It's a legal curse. In, in covenants in the ancient Near East, a curse is a legal penalty for breaking a covenant with the Lord or suzerain of the covenant. So what all of them are saying, the Pharisees ironically but Moses and Jeremiah and Paul directly is that all mankind is under a legal penalty for breaking the covenant of God in creation. This is it's true for us in Adam, who sinned first and brought condemnation upon us all. And it is true for each of us personally, because our specific actions of rebellion against God have brought the curse upon ourselves. Romans 6.23 tells us that the curse we are under is the same curse Adam received for breaking the law of God in the garden. If you, if you think about to Genesis 2, uh, 15 through 17, it, it says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we all know the story, right? The snake comes. He says, you surely shall not die. And then uh, Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God 
sort of shows up in, in glory. Uh, Adam and Eve hide. He asks Adam and Eve, what have you done? Um, and then he pronounces uh, a series of curses. Uh, Genesis 3.19 uh, reminds us of, of God's warning and, and curse of the covenant of creation when he says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 3.19 says, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam ate and Adam died because, as Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So who am I? Apart from the saving work of Christ, and his free gift of salvation to all who would believe, I am cursed. On my own, I am bound for death. So in, in a legal sense, right, we're cursed. We, we have the condemnation of the law upon us. And this is true whether we know it or not. It, it is something objectively true uh, because of what we read in Scripture. But that is... Not how Jesus starts his statement, right? He doesn't say, if anyone is cursed, it says, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts. Jesus here is speaking of our experience in this life. How do we experience the curse of the law? He is, he is speaking about how the, the status of curse causes us to feel in our soul. If legally we are cursed, then experientially, we, we are thirsty. Consider for a second how God describes breaking covenant with him from Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13. Jeremiah 2, 12 through 13 says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have create, uh, committed two evils. I, they, they've broken covenant. They have forsaken me, the fountain of, of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is the fountain of living water. He quenches thirst. He feeds crops. He provides abundance. He sustains life. He is the fountain of living waters. So sin is described as a turning away from the only thirst-quenching source and hewing out cisterns for ourselves. And a cistern is just a place that holds water to be used for, for needs later. But these cisterns are broken, they have holes in them, and the water just seeps out of them. They can't actually hold any water. So, so let's press into this metaphor for a second of Jeremiah 2. Uh, and, and I think uh, Jesus is also wanting us to press into this metaphor um, in John 7.35. So, so you're living your life, and you've abandoned the source of living water, which uh, Romans 3.23 says is not just some of us, but all of us, right? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we read it in Isaiah uh, today as well. Each of us, like sheep, has gone astray. Each of us has turned its own separate way, right? We, this is true. You, you've left the source of living water, and you get thirsty, as one is wont to do in life, right? You just live your life. If you don't drink anything for the day, you end up getting thirsty. And you mosey over to the cistern you've hewned out. 
your broken cistern that holds no water, are you going to find anything to drink there? Are you going to find anything that will sate your, 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 your thirst? Is the dust going to end the dryness in your mouth? Will the stone satisfy your body's need for water? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What Jesus is doing here, and the way John is framing it in his gospel, is to say this. Are you thirsty? Have you noticed your broken cisterns aren't working? Are you aware that condemnation and a curse are upon you? I, Jesus, am here for you. Come to me. Drink from me and be satisfied. This invitation is for everyone in this room, to everyone in Rock Hill, to everyone in this state, to everyone in this country, to everyone in this world. He wants you to place your faith in Christ, to repent of your sins, and to be baptized into his name. If you are thirsty, if you feel the sentence of death because of your sins, then come to Jesus to drink. But Jesus is also speaking to us, right, who continue to believe in his name, who continue to repent of our sins, and who continue to ratify our covenant with him at this table. He is reminding us that we still get thirsty too. And the wilderness of this world is a dry place, And while we tarry as sojourners and pilgrims in this place, our souls can become parched. And if you feel that this morning, if you feel you're in a place where life is difficult and you feel spiritually dry, either because of sins that you're battling or circumstances that are breaking your heart, then I want to encourage you to do two things. The first is run to Jesus. Remember the words of Psalm 42. Right? This is, this is a, a Christian speaking, right? Somebody who's in covenant with God. As the deer pants for the flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When shall I come and appear before God? My first encouragement to you is to run to Jesus. My second encouragement is is to make use of the body of Christ around you. Make use of the body of Christ around you. Come and talk uh, with with one of your elders that we might shepherd you and comfort you and encourage you and walk with you uh, as you walk toward Christ. Tell your community group that, that they might encourage and admonish and bear your burdens with you. Make use of the community around you to help you grow toward Christ. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And with this statement, Jesus not only asks us, Who am I? Right? Who are you? But he is also forcing us to consider, Who is Jesus? Who am I coming to? And this is our next point of consideration. Who is Jesus? Who is the one that is asking me to come to him? Our, our text today focuses on, on three aspects of, of Jesus' identity. He is, he is the prophet, he is the Christ, and he is the son of David. These 
offices all speak to him in relation to his humanity, right? Jesus was man. But before we consider them, I do want to call out some really important truths about Jesus that we've already seen from John in relation to his divinity because he is also God, right? Jesus is God. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. Through Jesus, all things were created. That's John 1.2. Jesus is the only begotten son from the Father. That's John 1.14. Jesus is the only begotten Son who alone can make the Father known. That's John 1.18. Jesus is the only begotten Son given by the Father for the love of God, for the salvation of the world. That's John 3.16. Jesus is the only begotten Son who is to be believed upon. That's John 3.18. Jesus is to be honored, for honoring the Son is honoring the Father. That's John 5.23. Jesus has life in himself. This is uh, the theological term called aseity. He has n- there are no contingencies upon his existence. He is life in himself. That's John 5:26. And Jesus grants this life to whomever he will. That's John 5:21. So who is Jesus? Jesus is, as our creed uh, commonly called the Nicene confesses, Jesus is the only Son of God. Begotten from the Father before all, all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. That's just, that's just a reflection on the Gospel of John, right? Um, but our text today puts the emphasis on Jesus in his humanity, not in his divinity, and, and he's a holder of a threefold office of prophet, a.k.a. he's the prophet. He's a priest, a.k.a. he's the Christ. And he's a king, a.k.a. the son of David. So the first office we'll consider is, is the prophet. Uh, we, we see this in, from verse 40, right? When, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. This is the same reaction that the people had uh, about Jesus after he fed them uh, on the mountain uh, in Galilee. And this, this, this title of the prophet is uh, a reference to the expected prophet who would arise after Moses. Uh, Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen through 18 tells us this. It's, it reads, uh, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them to, uh, to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Jesus is the one like Moses who arose from among the people of Israel. And Jesus' mouth are the very words of God. We should listen to him, believing in all that he says and doing all that he commands. Jesus is the prophet the, the second identity that our text focuses on is that Jesus is the Christ or, or Messiah. Verse 41 says, others said, this is the Christ. So Christ, 
Uh, we often just think it's Jesus' last name, right? Jesus Christ. But that's not what it is. It's a title. Uh, and, and literally it means one who has been anointed, right? He's the anointed one. In, in Old Testament times, uh, prophets were anointed. We see that in 1 Kings 19, 16, where uh, Elijah is to, told to anoint Elisha with oil. Uh, we see it of, of priests in Exodus 28, 41. There's also Psalm, right, where it talks about the oil on Aaron's dripping down into his beard, right? It's this idea that you get all this olive oil, and it's like so much oil it's dripping from his, his beard, which is just a beautiful, right? Just thinking about oil dripping from his beard is great. Um, and then also kings. So 1 Samuel 16, 13, David is anointed with oil from a horn, right? So all of these people, prophets, priests, and kings, were anointed with oil, and since prophet was the first office we identified, and king's going to be the last, I'm going to use the Christ uh, for, for priest. Uh, so Jesus is our great high priest. Uh, he's anointed. What is he anointed with? He's anointed with the Holy Spirit uh, at his baptism. We, we see all four Gospels affirm this truth. Uh, John 1, 32, Matthew 3, 16, Mark 1, 10, and Luke 3, 22. Uh, he, is, he is anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, and he is appointed as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which is Psalm 110.4 and Hebrews 7.17. Jesus serves as a priest to his people. And, and in Hebrews 9.11-28, which, like Galatians, might have also been familiar with John uh, as he is writing his gospel as well, uh, the priestly office of Jesus is described like this. This is, this is lengthy, but it's, it's beautiful. So Hebrews 9, 11 through 28. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant, i.e., right, he lifts the curse. The curse that is upon the people because of sin has been lifted by the blood of Christ. Uh, continuing in verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. 
And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, most everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's there on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus is anointed as the great high priest, and he has offered himself on our behalf. He has sprinkled us clean with his own blood, and he's removed from all those who call upon his name the curse of the law, namely death. Jesus is our great high priest. And finally, Jesus is the son of David, the true king of Israel. See this in, in verse 41. But, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And here we find another sort of stroke of irony uh, in our text. So, so Bethlehem and David are only mentioned once in John's gospel, and, it, and it's here, right? That's the only time David or Bethlehem are ever mentioned in John's gospel. And it's in the voice of the crowd questioning if Jesus can even be the Christ, right? He comes from Galilee. He can't be the Christ. But Jesus' birth in Bethlehem and his connection to the line of David, they are crucial to the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, right? Both of them contain an extensive genealogy, uh, and they have narrative accounts of how Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary, not in Galilee, right, right? Not in Nazareth in Galilee, where she and her betrothed lived, but in a city south of Jerusalem named Bethlehem, the city of David, right? God orchestrated a worldwide census, so that his son would be born in Bethlehem to fulfill this prophecy that the crowd is, is questioning. John knows that you, the reader, knows this. And as his gospel is likely the last uh, to be completed, and, and uh, everyone who is reading him has all likely been taught by the testimony of Matthew and Luke and, and the disciples familiar with, with their accounts, John knows that you as a reader know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And, and as David's son, Jesus then inherits the promises passed down through the patriarchs from Adam to Israel, in which find particular focus in David. Jesus is the son of David, the true king of Israel. And this is the promise that God makes to David from 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. 
when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, when you, when you die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, a temple, right, to, to a temple of worship, um, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son and I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you in reference to Saul. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. Jesus is the great king who builds God's temple. His kingdom shall never end and he shall scatter his enemies and destroy them. His people shall inherit the land. The nations will be blessed through him. And knowledge of his glory will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. Jesus is the son of David. And, and now that we've spent time considering who am I, seeing that we apart from Christ are cursed to die and thirsty for the water that only God can supply, and we've considered who Jesus is, and we've beheld him as the anointed prophet, priest, and king who declares to us the words and will of God. He cleanses us from all of our sins, and he establishes a kingdom of worship and safety for his people. Let us end by considering what he offers, how we accept it, and how the promise comes to fulfillment even now. So let us end by considering the promises of Jesus. So Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the gift Jesus offers is the Holy Spirit. That's sort of the, the simplest way to say it. And there, there is much to say about the Holy Spirit and his ministry among his people. He, the way he works in us salvation by, wa by the washing of regeneration, that's Titus 3.5, or, or how the Holy Spirit confirms to us our salvation purchased by Christ, that's Galatians 4.6, or, or how the Holy Spirit seals us for the full revelation of our salvation in Christ, that's Ephesians 1.13-14. Or the Holy Spirit's encouragement and strengthening of, strengthening of us, that's Acts 9.31. Or, or how the Holy Spirit teaches us all things and brings to our minds the words and work of Jesus, that's John 14.26. But over all of these is an infinitely glorious and eternally joyful fact that Jesus is promising to us that God will dwell with us. God will dwell with us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 makes this clear. Uh, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you, speaking to believers in, in the church? 2 Corinthians 6.16 kind of puts a fine point on it and brings the point home. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God is offering all of us today the offer to dwell with us. Are you thirsty 
for it? Are you thirsty for it? And if you are, there are some conditions that must be fulfilled. Right? Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So the three conditions Jesus lays out are to come to Jesus, to drink of Jesus, and to believe in Jesus. So how do you come to Jesus? How do you drink of Jesus? And how do you believe in Jesus? And I want to use three little vignettes from the Gospels to show us exactly how to do these things. And each of them will show us how to come to Jesus as, as one of his threefold offices of prophet, priest, and king. So as a king, how is Jesus pleased to accept us? Mark 10, 46 through 52. And they, they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. As a priest, right, Jesus is pleased to accept you in, in this way. And Jesus, this is from um, Matthew. Uh, Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them all. As a, as a prophet, Jesus is, is pleased to accept you in this way. This is uh, John 6, uh, verse 66. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Are you thirsty? Will you cry to him like blind Bartimaeus? Will you come to him at the house of God to be healed of your blindness and your infirmities? Will you recognize him as the one with the words of eternal life? Come to Jesus. And if you do, Jesus has promised this. right? He has promised that whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We're going to close by 
uh, just considering for a brief moment some of the implications of that statement, right? Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Um, I, don't, I don't know about you, uh, but I would think a small spring trickling in my heart would be sufficient to satisfy my thirst. Just a small, just a small spring in my heart. A single river would definitely be more than enough. There's, there's a stream that runs by my uh, in-law's house. It's a tiny stream. Like, it's tiny. If I drank at that thing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I would not drain it dry, right? It would still be flowing. I would have more than enough to drink. But Jesus promises multiple rivers of living water flowing out of my heart. That's what Jesus offers us. Christian, why do you think he's given you so many rivers of living water? Why has he given you so many rivers? Why are they flowing out of your heart? It is because a life lived with the Holy Spirit is one of love as we flow outwards with gratitude for all that Christ has done for us. Right Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. From the spiritual blessings we have in Christ in the heavenly places, we live lives of God-honoring love toward our neighbors. John, in the first of his epistles, and this is how we're going to end, described it this way. This is what John says in his epistles to the churches in John 2, 1 John 2, 1 through 11. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is his priestly office for us. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray. Lord, make us people of love. We want to obey all of your commandments and we want to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we, we recognize uh, that there are many ways in, in which our love falls short. Ways in which we aren't uh, spirit-filled, we aren't full of peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. 
we, we lash out in anger. We, we throw barbs at people. We uh, tear down with our words rather than build up. We seek our own comforts. We put ourselves first. Uh, we, we think it's better to receive than to give. Lord, we confess all these before you as a sin. We confess that we um, need you to cleanse us even further, even more, that we may walk out in, in a life of, of obedience to all of your commands and of love for those you have placed around us. We know that you are good and that your blood cleanses us from our sins. So we rejoice that we are cleansed, that you hear our confession and that you cleanse us that there is no condemnation for us in Christ. And Lord, we, we beg you to make us more in love with you every day, that you would continually open our eyes to ways in which we uh, fall short of obeying you in all your commands, the ways that we fall short in extending your love to the world around us. Lord, open up our mouths to speak your name to our neighbors, to share the good news of Jesus with them, Open up uh, our lips to speak words of encouragement and love and kindness and patience with those around us. Help us to seek the good of others above our own. Help us to be humble and kind. Help us to be gentle and lowly. We want to honor you in all that we say and do. We want to be yours in every way. We pray all this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.